0: Good evening. Goodbye Forever, Volume 2 by Nat Chang Chapter 6, Part 2. I don't even really like explaining it that much, unless someone asks, and then I never know how much or how little to say. I'd say you pitched it perfectly, replied Jam. Who gave you your Nakpa vows, Kyabjai Dujjum rimshe in 1971? I've heard of him. He's the head of the Nyingma school, isn't he? I nodded. Yes, Dujum Jigdral Yeshe Dorje. He's the incarnation of the great Tertong, Dudjum Lingpa, and really the most amazing Lama. The Nyingma school, asked Kate, is that different from what happens here? Yes, this is a centre of the Kagyu school. It's quite close to the Nyingma tradition in a lot of ways and many of the Lamas take teachings from each other. The Nyingma tradition, I'd call it a tradition rather than a school, is the oldest in Tibet. Nyingma means ancient. (coughs) I call it a tradition because it's heterodox. It contains many different lineages. There are six major lineages and many minor lineages. The Kagyu school is one of the three new translation schools. They came roughly a hundred years later. Please tell me when I start boring you because... I could blather on all night and all tomorrow about this. People are only boring when they're trying to impress you with their knowledge, Jan smiled. So if you're happy to go on answering questions, I'll keep asking them. Until the evening practice, that is. Then, as you've got the big double room, we can join you and talk the night away. It's not always easy to get straightforward answers to questions, so I'd like to take the opportunity if it's on offer. It's on offer, I'd be delighted, I replied. But it was time then for the evening practice session in the shrine room. We adjourned and I was delighted to feel as if I was back in Nepal. It was a pleasure to know that such a place existed in Britain the perfectly organised bands of colour that wrapped the room and a thousand years of meaning shimmered in the dim light. The chanting commenced but as I had no text I simply sat and allowed my awareness to be suffused by the sound. After the session of chanting the three ladies accompanied me to the double room which for the rest of my stay became some kind of private club with a gradually increasing membership. And so the evening wove itself on a loom of loquacious fascination. I told Jan of my own Zen and Theravadin background in terms of the books I'd read before I went to India. She was intrigued that we had similar backgrounds in terms of our approach to Vajrayana. My approach was different inasmuch as I knew I was headed in the direction of Vajrayana, whilst I was gaining what I could from my Zen and Theravadin readings. So there was nothing available on silent sitting in the Tibetan tradition when you started out, asked Jan. No, nothing at all. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche was the first to write about it, but it was only slightly touched upon in *Born in Tibet*, which came out in sixty-six. That was an autobiographical account of his life in Tibet and his subsequent escape to India. I read that. I really enjoyed it. Dot commented. I'd really like to go to Tibet, and it would be amazing to meet Trungpa Rinpoche. Yes said Jan with a grin. He was quite remarkable in a lot of ways by all accounts. I just missed him when I came here but the rumours were quite astonishing. Sammy Ling is quite quiet now in comparison. Yes, I commented. I met a lady called Emily on the way back from Edinburgh in 71 and she'd just come from Sami Ling, and she'd told me about the way he'd shout suddenly as a means of transmission. Like an idiot, I didn't change my plans and go straight back up north. I would have met Chogiang Trumperimshay if I'd done that, but it was a chance lost. I thought he was going to be staying here indefinitely, and then suddenly he was gone. That, said Jan in a slightly wistful tone, seems to be a lesson that everyone has to keep learning over and over again. Too right, I concurred. That's happened to me a good few times. I wish I could see the full potentiality of the present moment. Yes, Jan mused, that's the object of meditation, but what would be more difficult? if not impossible, is to know that moment everywhere, simultaneously. I don't think you can blame yourself for not being omniscient. I mean, how could you have known that Trungpa was about to leave for the USA? That made me reflect a moment. Well, it's not that I'm blaming myself for lack of omniscience. I think I'm blaming myself for lack of spontaneity. As it was, I went down to Devon and spent a few days there, just because I'd been invited. And that didn't turn out well? asked Dot. It turned out very well indeed. I played some blues at the Art School Folk and Blues Club and had some rather fine conversations. I didn't mention Rose and Valerie. In some ways, I hardly believed Rose and Valerie had happened. It's not every day one is coaxed into bed by two young ladies. Casting my mind back, it seemed as if it could almost have happened to someone else. For me, I continued, it's more a matter of having a greater sense of spark or abandonment to the to the possible that's important said kate i feel that it's good to allow ourselves to be increasingly spontaneous jan roared with laughter at that idea yes well i think that's a wonderful idea but sometimes it plays out very badly indeed I've been spontaneous a few times when I've regretted it badly, so I'm not so sure it's wise as a general policy. Not unless you really don't mind what happens. Yes, I think you're right, Jan, I replied. I think that would require realisation or something very close. You'd need the three terrible oaths as your experiential framework to carry that off. The three terrible oaths, asked Jan. They're connected with Dorje Trulu, the most wrathful manifestation of Guru Rinpoche. Whatever happens, may it happen. Whichever way it goes, may it go that way. There is no purpose. Wow! Dot almost yelled, that is really far out, but I can't imagine living like that. No, I replied, neither can I, but it helps to bear it in mind when I'm trying to manipulate my circumstances too much, just in order to be comfortable. Being uncomfortable is a luxury of people under 30. Jan laughed. There's enough discomfort without looking for it. Yeah, I sighed. That's true. Finding an appropriate equation is probably what I'd prefer. A balance, asked Dot. Not quite. That would be wanting things to be equitable in some way. No, what I'd like is to be able to know where to take risks and when a risk is a step too far. Wouldn't we all, Jan grinned, that would make for a perfect life. Well, I grinned, I don't think I'd object too much to that. This was turning into a lively evening and I was most glad I'd come to Sammy Ling. ''Are there any other books by Trungpa Rinpoche? asked Dot. ''Yes, Meditation in Action. That came out in 69, so I got my first real introduction to silent sitting in the Tibetan tradition then. Then Mudra came out in 72, excellent poetry book with brilliant insights into the view of meditation.'' The Big Blast came just recently with Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. That book nailed my ears to the sky. Fabulous. Excuse me while I kiss your ears, Dot squeaked and fell back laughing. I can see you have a way with words, commented Jan. You don't write poetry by any chance? Yes. I have written poetry since I was at junior school. Do you have anything here? Not really, although I have my notebook with me and there are some examples of work in progress. There was a general eager agreement about seeing them, so I hooked my notebook out of my bag. This is the last verse of a piece I've been working on for a while. It's far from finished, so don't be too harsh in your. Well, here it is. Husky feast of topsy turvy fiasco limitations quivering against the splintered stockades of imperious pluripotential pliancy. In preemptive reflection, predestined meanderings reveal. Well-cooked applications to summon significant verve or vital vivacity. Raucously embroidered moments catapulted into entrancing impulsiveness of pendulous profanity, bulging with capriciousness. Water-resistant stimuli trounce camouflage of flippant dismay, ingeniously malleable in multifarious, surreptitious peculiarity. Burgeoning brazen, gleaming smokescreen insinuations, inaudible shrewdness, jumbled adjacency of wreckages at anchor, the density of improbability, cavernous with insatiably amiable metaphors, provoke reckless symposia in Chesterfield Road. My audience sat in silence for about a minute. "'Yes,' commented Dot. "'I'd say the same,' Kate added. Jan grinned. "'That was unexpected. "'I wouldn't have thought you would have been given "'to write anything quite so intricate. "'It's both delicate and dense, "'and you obviously have no interest in linear meaning. "'I like that, though. "'Could you read it again?' I'd like to try not trying to understand as I'm listening." I read the piece again. It's weird, Kate commented, it's as if I'm understanding something in words that vanish as soon as the words move on. It seems to be more about the sounds of the words than the meanings. Yes, that's right. although fragments of meaning are intended to emerge from the chaos as the piece moves on. There are five stanzas in the piece and they all follow the same form. The same form? asked Jan. Yes, the word order is maintained with changes to the words. Each stanza in the canto conveys almost the same message, apart from changes that arise out of the juxtaposition of the words themselves. "'Yikes!' exclaimed Dot. "'You're like some sort of psychedelic Einstein or something.' "'That is far too kind, Dot. "'I think I'd like to be something like that, "'but I think I have a long way to go before I find a voice that really works. "'My material is still far too cerebral.' And I need to weave it with more ordinariness, such as, asked Jan, fish and chip papers, fire extinguishers, sewing machines, moles, Victorian paving slabs, railway compartments, fire engines, roller skates, harpoons, assortments of mismatched cutlery, cuttlefish box cameras plimsolls tailcoats bagpipes blowpipes organ pipes rotisseries and well anything that summons up a contrast to abstractions i really love chogyam trumperemche's poetry but i dare not allow myself to be influenced too much or i'd just write imitations of what he wrote What do you think of him driving his car into a joke shop? That was kind of wild, said Kate. I mean, it seems that he deliberately set out to crash his whole situation and derail people from their dependence on him. I really like the way he wasn't part of the institution. Hmm, I pondered. I'm not sure there's any future in trying to understand fragments of Chugyam Trungpa life. For me, the most important thing is his emphasis on silent sitting. Yes, I'd say the same, Jan opined. I understand the rest in the same way I'd read Ted Hughes's poetry, I added. Turning to Kate, Jan asked, but what do you understand by institution? I mean, in terms of his not being part of it. Wasn't he against organised religion? Kate asked. No, Jan came back fairly quickly. He was against making a big difference between Tibetans and Western people, and he was against his being enshrined as a holy object. He never said anything anti-establishmentarian. He established Sami Ling with Akyong Rimsheh, So he must have had some idea that it was useful to have an institution that would provide a focus for the study and practice of Dharma. I pondered Jan. She was obviously a serious person. She had a sense of respect that seemed in line with mine. She was a lively, good-natured person who wasn't afraid of expressing herself. But neither was she obnoxiously outspoken. ''You like institutions then?'' asked Kate. Jan laughed at the question. ''Yes, I eat them for breakfast.'' ''Why would you jump to that conclusion, Kate? I only said what I said because I see no reason to pigeonhole Trumperimche as some kind of anti-establishment rebel.'' ''I prefer rebels, I suppose.'' Nothing wrong with that, Jan returned. I think the other Chögyam here might be a bit of a rebel. Jan turned to me a little sheepishly. Sorry about that. I haven't embarrassed you, have I? No, Jan, not in the least. I'm not exactly embarrassable. In terms of rebelliousness, I think I'm merely a rebel without a clause. Or perhaps without a subclause. I'm an unrebellious, quasi Rabelaisian, yet re- recidivistically recondite type rebel. Riotous yet reserved, if you know what I mean. I was doing my best to dissemble with this volley of verbiage. Oh, very witty, very witty, but, laughed Dot. You're saying you're not embarrassable. My dissembling was in vain. No, although I can't give any cast iron guarantees about it. Mm, chuckled Dot. That sounds like a challenge to me. I'm probably not absolutely averse to that, I laughed, but what have you in mind? Let's see, laughed Dot. Would you wear a pair of my knickers all day tomorrow? That caused me laughter. Certainly, that's no problem. Go fetch a pair. The prettier and frillier the better. The room convulsed at that and Dot went off to get a pair of knickers. She came back after a few minutes and handed them over. I took charge of them and perused them momentarily. Yes, I think they'll fit. Dot then asked Kate and Jan what it was like not wearing a bra, and I realised she was trying another angle on me. I've tried it, but it's a little painful towards the end of the day. Doesn't seem to make any difference to me, but then my breasts aren't that large. What about you, Jan? That's why I wear this bodice. It gives me some support without restricting me like a brazier would. I used to wear those ghastly underwired things and in the end, I just couldn't stand it any more. As for me, I opined, I've never quite understood the need for them, especially the cone shaped things that some ladies wore in the fifties. A lad I used to know at school had a sister who wore those and she looked as if she was concealing weapons. All right, Chögyam, I believe you, you're not embarrassable, Dot laughed. You're a complete hoot, you really are, but you're also the unlikeliest man in robes I ever met.